Oh yeah, absolutely. And what you want can keep changing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what I'm doing more or less is somewhat mainstream, but I'm actually still always trying to figure out my path and trying to figure out what I'm meant to be doing, both like what can, how can I give most and how can I feel the happiest and most settled. Mm -hmm. I love that. Welcome to the Orchestrating Your Career podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca, Becca for short, and I'm a clarinetist who studied at the Eastman School of Music and then went to London to get my master's and PhD, both at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Having shifted pathways in my own life, I love hearing about the very careers musicians can have and how they got there. And that's precisely what we're exploring in this podcast. As I sit down with music graduates to chat about their unique musical journeys, hear their hard-earned wisdom, and learn about how they're orchestrating their own careers. For today's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Molly McDonald a violinist in the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra and member of the Soloff Quartet. Molly did her undergraduate degree in violin performance at the Eastman School of Music and then her master's at the Cleveland Institute of Music before winning a one-year position with the RPO. Throughout the interview, she shares her experiences from growing up performing folk music with her parents, entering a professional orchestra while still finishing up her master's, and taking auditions and moving around the violin section within the RPO. Molly shares such thoughtful insights into taking auditions, playing in a professional orchestra, and balancing family life as a wife and mother to two children alongside her musical career. She also has a super fun side hustle of flower arranging that's really cool to hear about as well. You're listening to Molly and the Soloff Quartet playing an arrangement of Debussy's Claire de Lune under this intro. Stay tuned till the end of the episode to hear some more of this performance. And now let's get right into the interview. Hello, Molly, and welcome to the Orchestrating Your Career podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's really nice to see you while I'm here in Rochester. And I have very distinct memories of move-in day at the Eastman School of Music. My first day moving into the dorms and the RAs were here to greet us, a resident advisor at Eastman. And I just remember you being in the circular opening of the dorms and welcoming all of the students and all of the RAs, including you, were so warm. And it just really set the stage for my time at Eastman. From the beginning, I just felt enveloped in the Eastman community (laughs) and it was wonderful. I became an RA two years later for my last two years at Eastman. And that was largely because of the impact that the RAs had on me. Coming back, I feel that same welcoming environment and it all started on moving day with you guys so i'm really grateful in addition to being a wonderful ra you're also an incredible violinist you now play with the rochester philharmonic orchestra so it would be really cool to hear about how you went from studying at eastman all the way back around to living in rochester again and playing in the orchestra But before that, could you just go back to the beginning for me and tell me how you got into classical music and why the violin? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So um, 
Growing up, I had a lot of music around my house, mm-hmm. and um, both of my parents are musicians, and um, they are more like folk musicians. Mm-hmm. And so my dad always played guitar and uh, fiddle, mm-hmm. and then he also, when he met my mom or when they got married, he taught her to play the accordion, and so they started playing music wow. together. Um, so when I was little, I would like always fall asleep listening to them rehearsing for their next gig, mm-hmm. and I, I very much admired my dad and his fiddle playing mm. so when he would play um you know really fancy stuff like orange blossom special i would just be like oh i want to do that can you teach me that so i i did sort of beg and beg to play the violin and mm. um eventually they caved in and my dad was like okay well we're not going to buy you a violin but we can make one so my we made my first violin how did you make a violin well, it was a little, it was a little makeshift. It was, it was a cigar box, at wow. which we kind of like fashioned a neck and put like a couple, it only had two strings on it. And, wow. um, he taught me to play a couple tunes on it and then I sort of like gave it back and was like, no, really, I like, I want to play the original. <laughs> wow. Um, but then I sort of like came and went to that a little bit when I was younger. And then it wasn't till I was about nine years old mm-hmm. that my parents basically signed me up for violin lessons. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was sort of like, I don't really know know if I want to do that but they signed me up for lessons and encouraged me to keep working at it yeah so was that private lessons or was in school private lessons okay yeah I said my first violin teacher was a violinist in the Kansas City Symphony mm. and um it was a little hard starting at that age the age mm. of nine because I didn't I had a lot of musical background of course yeah. in my family but not a lot of skills mm-hmm. so I was nine years old and I was playing lightly row mm-hmm. you know and it just felt a little silly like I felt kind of embarrassed did, and, so did you feel sort of old older yeah I felt kind of older than my um other mm-hmm. colleagues and I felt yeah I, I guess it was frustrating at the beginning but yeah. ultimately I moved through music pretty quickly because yeah. of all that background mm-hmm. and I like, already knew how to read music so um eventually I got a little more hooked on it but definitely my parents had to encourage me to keep going yeah. yeah and and I had read that you played a lot with your family what did yeah. that look like yeah um they just started including me in some of their performances mm-hmm. so um cool. it would at the beginning I would just kind of get up and do one song with them mm-hmm. I might sing with them or play the violin um and then I, I really liked that we played we played at like a lot of retirement communities and mm-hmm. libraries and very kind of low-key settings yeah but I kind of got a rush out of getting up and performing so yeah. I always wanted to do it more and more and mm-hmm. um, ultimately my parents would start letting me do a whole program with them or mm-hmm. they would even start paying me a little bit for doing it and, and so that was a nice introduction to performing and what that feels like how it can be fun and rewarding yeah that's really cool and yeah. it's really amazing that you got to start doing that so early I guess because I feel like maybe a lot of music students don't start performing out in the community until they're studying it at music school or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, and it's yeah. ironic because I kind of came to the violin a little bit late, yeah. actually, but kind of came to performing a little bit early, early. in a funny way. So, yeah, yeah, that is funny. So when did you start thinking that you wanted to do music as your own career and study music, and how did you end up here at Eastman? Um, well, let's see, I think during maybe middle school and early high school is when I got a little bit more serious about the violin. And I can remember 
I, it's hard to pinpoint when I got more entrenched in the violin, but I definitely remember going to one Kansas City symphony concert that was very impactful because mm-hmm. my teacher would always give us tickets to the symphony mm-hmm. so we would go a lot so I remember going to one concert where they were playing Dvorak New World Symphony because oh. as you can imagine as a high schooler hearing that for the first time it could really blow your mind yeah some pieces you hear and it doesn't really catch you from the beginning but that one really caught me I mean I was just on the edge of my seat mm-hmm. like at the brink of tears the whole time I couldn't believe it and then I went home and listened to a recording of it wow. about like a thousand times mm-hmm. probably most people have like an impactful memory like that yeah and so that opened my mind to what uh, to the world of orchestral playing mm-hmm. I started thinking I really wanted to do that mm-hmm. and um and then also I uh, alongside that started having some really fun other experiences so we had chamber music camps when I was growing up mm-hmm. that I attended over the summer in Kansas City and uh that was super fun and super challenging mm-hmm. and I met so many like-minded people at those places yeah so I found some of my closest friends and we and we um formed a group that played together throughout the year and we did gigs of our own and that kind of thing. So I think just feeling like I belonged in that with those people and in that setting helped me start to make that decision. Were you looking at a bunch of different music schools? Were you considering universities versus conservatoires? What was sort of the thought process behind applying to schools? Right. Let's see. So I feel like I went into the whole school thing a little bit naively. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Eastman was only on my radar because my friend who was a year older, Dan cellist, um, from Kansas city came here. Okay. So I, I knew what Eastman was and I knew what a couple other schools were just from word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I applied to a couple, maybe three conservatories and two state schools. Mm-hmm. And the decision, I only got into Eastman and then one of the state schools. So mm-hmm. the decision was made for me very easily. Yeah. And Eastman was actually my top choice. So yeah, really nicely. Yeah. Did you come take a lesson before or did you just come for audition day and experience Eastman for the first time on that day? Right. Um, I think, no, no, no. I did come visit. I did Mm -hmm. come visit and take a lesson before. So I Mm -hmm. had an image of the place. Mm -hmm. Was that partially why it was at the top of your list because you had come and visited and had a good experience? I I think partially. um, It's sometimes hard to say. I feel like I just really didn't know a lot of what was going on. I guess I just got a a good feeling. I knew my friend was there. Yeah. 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 And I think that example is always really helpful to see, oh, someone who was in a similar place to me, position to me, and now you can see the pathway that they started and recognize that, oh, that's, that looks like a good one for me to follow as well. That's a good point. It might have just been a, it provided some clarity when yeah. I really didn't know what was out there. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your experience at Eastman like? So you had come from this background that sounds pretty rich in performing and playing, um, but now you're in this very competitive academic music build environment. How was that transition for you? And what was your time at Eastman like? Yeah, oh, um, I had it a very positive time overall at Eastman and it's something that I had been craving for many years Mm -hmm. although I loved my high school friends and I loved the challenges of um, my program that I was doing in high school uh, I really was always craving being in a music school environment Mm -hmm. so finally being there felt really great and then I would say that there were also a lot of challenges Mm -hmm. so I think I came in and 
uh, came into school with a lot of insecurities and still have a lot of insecurities, mm. maybe about starting late, feeling like a little behind all the time, Yeah, which is okay because I feel like I have always thrived feeling like a small fish in a bigger pond. Mm. That's always helped me make progress. Mm. Cause it's um, pushed you to work harder or absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's pushed me to work harder and it's been inspiring. And mm. so I felt a little bit that way at Eastman. I didn't feel like I connected that much with my first teacher mm. and I was with that teacher for almost three years. Mm-hmm. So I felt like there was a lot of searching. I was just trying to figure things out for myself. I was trying to get better, but I didn't always know how. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, there were just a lot of personal challenges there, but I still did have a wonderful experience and I loved the school and I loved my friends, but in ret- retrospect, I spent a lot of that time searching. Yeah. And then, um, finally my last year, well, I guess it was my junior year. I started taking rep class with Juliana, who's mm-hmm. the concert master of the RPO. Mm-hmm. And that was a little bit of a light bulb moment, like a little, another one of those sources of clarity that I desperately yeah. needed. And the way that she taught was made so much sense and it was so efficient and mm-hmm. so effective and so practical teaching orchestra rep. I was like, yeah, being in an orchestra is what I want. And here's yeah. someone who's really showing me how to get there. Thank goodness. Thank yeah. you. That's what I've been craving. So I actually switched into her studio my final year at Eastman. And then I stayed an extra year to keep working with her. And I um, think that sort of might have propelled me into a positive phase in my, um, music progress my musical progress. yeah yeah wow yeah that's really cool and I think that feeling that you're describing of searching I can search for I feel like that's probably very relatable for a lot of students because I think I think a lot of times music students go into undergrad thinking I know what I'm going to do but actually like you're saying a lot of us go in with a very naive kind of idea of what the musical career is and maybe having not had a lot of exposure to what it actually entails to get into music and all of that. And so I feel like that time at, especially in your undergrad is so instrumental in trying out different things and exploring and searching and coming to the realization for yourself on exactly what pathway you want to go down. So I think it's really helpful that you share that, that you experienced that, but then you had this moment where it really helped you crystallize what exactly you were looking for. And then you were able to better pursue that because of it. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that period of searching at Eastman and these other maybe experiences that were filtering into your, yeah, your academic experience? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I did do a little bit of searching and uh, let's see, I did also try out some new skills. <laughs> so I, uh, I was part of the Balinese Gamelon. There's so many interesting oh, things cool. that, yeah. this one that you can try. Yeah. Um, and I also started playing with the, um, the early music ensemble there. Mm. So yeah, I took a class with Paula Dett. Okay. Who, yeah. Um, of course this, just the one of the most amazing lutenists in the Mm -hmm. world and also really effective teachers. So I loved his class and it opened my mind to the world of early music. Mm -hmm. So I started playing a little bit of Baroque violin, which I still do a little bit. Wow. And that was also an instrumental thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And I took a couple, uh, academic courses at U of R too. Okay. But yeah, um, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I always, Even this weekend, I've been spending some time at the U of R campus, 
and I always feel kind of lost there. So I'm <laughs> yeah. like, it's so big. Right. right. And there's a difference. Like, like, how do I find my way around? It's what I expected college would be like, but yeah. it's not what we experienced. Yeah. We it's that. very different, but it's cool that it's available to students yeah. and that, you know, if you are an Eastman student, you can go over there and you don't even have to do a double major or something. You can just take one or two classes That's, and just experience it. Right. I don't know how, how much it is that way now. I assume it's just the same as when I was there, but yeah, you can just get on a bus and go over to the mm-hmm. campus and take pretty much any class that you want. Yeah. Which yeah. is cool. It's just a nice opportunity and it's interesting to see how the other half lives, I guess. And, right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is more of a typical undergraduate student experience. It's nice to yeah. dip your toe in, I guess. <laughs> there's more options in the cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> on a small Eastman campus, there's only so many food options. Right. On a larger one, there's a lot more. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. So what were your career goals while you were at Eastman? Did you have an idea? You talked about wanting to be in an orchestra. Was that your main idea of what you wanted to do when you left? I think so. Yeah. So it was a combination of a few different things. I think watching my parents Mm -hmm. um, have to create their own careers. Yeah. So were they freelance? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So watching them sort of piece it together every day Mm -hmm. was, I always thought, gosh, that must be really stressful. And I I wanted a job that had a little bit more security and just that I could a little more regularity, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, that paired with that inspiration from watching the symphony growing up mm-hmm. and falling in love with orchestral repertoire. Mm-hmm. And then finding this amazing teacher, Juliana, who yeah. taught rep class, I started to see that as a path forward that would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, and then little by little started just really, really want that. Yeah. Especially as I realized how competitive it is to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, it sort of lit a fire mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking I'll go on to do a master's after I graduate or were you thinking I'll start taking auditions or what, yeah, what were your thoughts for graduating from Eastman? Uh, I, I knew that I wanted to do a master's. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to keep practicing and learning. Yeah. Progressing hopefully yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. How did you think about where you wanted to go? Were you again looking at what other students at Eastman were doing or trying out different schools? Yeah, I, I did look at what other people at Eastman were doing. Um, CIM was on my radar because I just thought of that as a, a an orchestral-minded mm. place, knowing that the Cleveland Orchestra is there. Yeah. A lot of the teachers there play in the Cleveland Orchestra. Um, also, my teacher, Juliana, studied with the concert master of the Cleveland Orchestra. So there's just a lot of connections. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a logical place to look at. Yeah. Um, and it was nearby. It was driving distance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it made a lot of sense to mm-hmm. there. Yeah. How did you end up going there? I guess you applied and auditioned. Yeah. (laughs) Did you apply anywhere else? And then what was your experience like while you were there? Yeah, I did apply a couple other places. Um, I think I applied to Rice and Mm -hmm. MC. I can't actually, honestly, can't remember the exact places. Um, And I also thought about New World for a little bit. Mm. And I, yeah, I ended up just... um, segueing from my teacher Juliana to her teacher Bill Brussel at CIM. Yeah. How was the master's program at CIM different than your undergraduate experience 
It was so different. Yeah. It was so different. So CIM is a lot smaller than mm. Eastman. Eastman is already really Yeah, small. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. CIM is a lot smaller. I think it might be like 500 something like mm-hmm. that, where Eastman's more like 2,000. I, I feel like when I was here, I believe, I could be wrong, I believe the numbers were 500 undergrads and maybe 400 postgrads. Okay. So maybe I think I'm thinking of my high school. So I think I went from a 2,000 person high school mm-hmm. to a 1,000 person <gasps> undergrad school to a 500. Wow, um, just having <laughs> it. Okay stuff in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So it felt different because it was smaller. Yeah. And then one big difference that I noticed, uh, it's just that there, there were less, uh, degrees offered there. So there's Mm -hmm. no jazz program at CIM. And I didn't realize that that was such a special thing about Eastman that I would miss, but Mm -hmm. I really missed having jazz music around and also those personalities. Yeah. You know, (laughs) they're fun people. Right. Right. Yeah. And I guess the jazz festival is such a big thing in Rochester as well. And yeah, I remember going to jazz concerts and it's just, yeah, it's just fun. It's so fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I loved CIM Mm -hmm. and, um, I had a really interesting experience there. Um, before going, I found out that they had this cool program where a couple of their students could live at this retirement community that was nearby. Interesting. Yeah. The place is called Judson Manor Mm -hmm. and uh, ironically, there's even a couple former Cleveland Orchestra members who now live in that retirement wow. community and they they love music. They're so just creative and such thoughtful people. It's an amazing community. Mm-hmm. So and I'm not totally sure if they still do it, but at the time when I was a student, they always had two CIM students living there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, the students would live there for free in exchange for just creating programming for the residents. Wow. So you were one of those. So I applied for that and I ended up doing that. Amazing. Which was really cool because I saw that and I just thought, oh my gosh, that's so something that I want to mm-hmm. do. How did you find out about that program? Uh, I think I was just maybe searching around like the CIM website yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and started seeing some videos about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just was really determined to do that. And it worked mm-hmm. out for me, which was so cool. Mm-hmm. And so while I was there, um, I also had this unique community of older people who really took me in and were so kind and sort of helped me slow down in my otherwise very hectic and focused Mm -hmm. musical life. Mm -hmm. And they were very supportive. So they would come to all my recitals and I would perform all of my recitals there beforehand. Mm -hmm. And even when I was preparing for orchestra auditions, I would play all of my breakthroughs for them. They're so supportive. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's so cool. Yeah. How was the, cause you were saying you were responsible for programming for the community. What did that look like? And, and had you done anything like that before? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think about that. Um, I mean, I had just kind of created my own recitals and maybe yeah. a couple little programs, like I guess from playing with my parents, I yeah. had put together programs before. Mm-hmm. And also I had a chamber group going up, growing up and we put together programs. Mm-hmm. So mostly I would, um, work with the pianist who lived there, who mm-hmm. actually, ironically, she also went to Eastman before going to Eastman. Oh, how Mary, funny. Mary Van Hooser, I don't know if you know. Oh yeah, that yeah. sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. So we lived there together and we put on recitals together. So we worked together to come okay. to their programming. Sometimes we would bring in other students to perform. And help mm-hmm. facilitate those concerts. Okay. Okay. So it was yeah. mainly 
recitals that you were doing yourself or that you brought other CIM students, but you were still mm -hmm. organizing all of that. Yeah. And I also had a quartet when I was at CIM mm -hmm. and we would do concerts at Judson Manor also. Yeah. That's and really also my parents cool. came and visited and we played concerts there. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's really special. Yeah. That's really amazing that a program like that exists and... I think it's really cool that you found it and that you went for it and then got that experience because how helpful that you didn't have to worry about housing costs mm -hmm. and then how incredible that you were able to plug into this other kind of community that maybe not a lot of other students would ever have the opportunity to experience and then to exercise those skills of, you know, organizing and programming and putting on all these kinds of different concerts. Yeah. And it was great for me, but they said it was great for them too. Of course. I feel like intergenerational work and living is good for everybody. Yeah. So yeah, everybody benefits from that. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was living in London, I spent some time living with the family and like you're saying that intergenerational living, this wasn't with older people, but there was a young girl and they became sort of my second family. And I just think those kinds of experiences really help shape you as a person in other ways than maybe a more typical experience of living in the dorms. And so it's really great that you can have that kind of variety, even in, you know, not in just your playing, but in your own just life as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, totally. It was very inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I hope that program still exists. I know, and I hope that really it catches cool. on in other places. I think it would work really well here in Rochester. Yeah. Cool places um, that... Yeah, people should take note and I know. start start up similar. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because like you say, it's just beneficial on all sides. Like yeah. everyone benefits. There's no downside. So yeah. why not? Yeah, <laughs> amazing. So you spent two years at CIM. Well, I yeah, it was a two years master, mm -hmm. two year master's degree. Uh, in in September of my second year, I took the audition for RPO and I got it. But I wanted to finish my degree, so I just commuted for that year. And thankfully, both wow. um, the RPO was willing to be flexible, and also CIM was willing to be flexible. So they mm -hmm. helped me work out a way to come, but not be there all the time and mm -hmm. um, make up things on my own time. Mm -hmm. So I was able to finish that degree. Okay, so you're saying it was the beginning of your second year at the IM that you took the audition for the RPO. Was this your first professional audition or had you taken others before? I had taken some others before. Okay. Um, I had auditioned for the RPO sub list mm. beforehand. When so you were at Eastman? When I was at Eastman. I probably did it a couple times and ultimately I did get on the sub list, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't my first attempt. Yeah. And then when I lived in Cleveland, I auditioned for um, regional orchestras in the mm -hmm. area, and um, that was a great starting point. I, this is sort of a separate question, but that was a great starting point for um, learning to play in an orchestra. I was playing the Canton Symphony when I lived mm -hmm. in Cleveland. And that was a regional orchestra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was maybe like an hour away from mm -hmm. Cleveland, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I had auditioned for the Kansas City Symphony a couple mm -hmm. times and uh, auditioned for the New World Symphony. Mm -hmm. So I had done a few. Oh, and also some of the festi summer festivals that I auditioned for yeah. had orchestral excerpts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you do summer festivals later? I did summer festivals pretty much every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I felt like I just needed that extra time to Experience. learn. Experience. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, it sounded like you, once you decided orchestra was kind of the direction you wanted to go, 
you're very much taking all these opportunities to propel you on that pathway. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to do festivals that had a good orchestra program. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the audition process like for the RPO? Ah, okay. So, um, for that, for that audition in September. Yeah. The one that you want. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was kind of hilarious actually. Mm-hmm. So this was a one year of assistant principal second violin audition. Okay. And, um, I knew that I wouldn't be done with school, but I thought it would be a good one, one that I really cared about. So a good one to shoot for mm-hmm. and it was nearby. Mm-hmm. And I had the connection to Rochester. So that also fueled my desire to take that audition. Yeah. And I, so I prepared really hard for it and mm. I played for so many friends in yeah. practice rooms and at like our regional orchestra gigs. We'd like find a storage closet and I play for my friends there. Mm-hmm. I just play for people all the time. Yeah. Just really quickly. I'm wondering if you could break down some more of that preparation process and cause you were also studying at CIM at the time or mm-hmm. was it summer or uh, yeah at the time okay the so how did you balance that with school and maybe it fed into what you were already doing at CIM and do you have any sort of tips and advice for that audition preparation time yeah oh it's yeah it is an intense process and I think you just have to do it and learn from doing it because mm-hmm. everybody has a different system yeah or um that works for them mm-hmm. my husband for instance he never plays for or rarely plays for people when he prepares for auditions. Wow. Um, and then I have to play for tons of people to yeah. get my nerves out. So yeah. it's a little bit different for everybody, but mm-hmm. there's so many, like you can even find step-by-step processes mm-hmm. out there for preparing over a two month period. And mm-hmm. you can do that. There's so many different methods. What did it look like for you? For me, it was just a little, um, more free form, mm-hmm. just learning and preparing on my own and trying to get to the highest level based on work in my various rep classes and lessons and then playing for as many people and recording myself a lot. Yeah. 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 So I might approach an audition a little bit differently now than I did then. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I did then. Yeah. And, um, the audition was that particular audition was actually on my birthday. So I had like a little extra, I think energy that day. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I didn't tell my parents about it because mm-hmm. in the past, you know, telling people just was too much pressure. Yeah. I decided, okay, I'm just going to go do this. Mm-hmm. I remember like the day that I went to go audition, I went to go get in my car after warming up in a practice room and I had a flat tire. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was no. like, are you kidding me? Uh, so right when I needed to leave, I couldn't go anywhere. So I just like ran downstairs and it was raining and uh, I like got flagged down whatever bus was going by and said, can you take me to this place? And oh my God. took me there and then like my tea spilled all over my audition next there. So there's so many things, you know, that just... Yeah. So many things that you just can't possibly predict, Mm -hmm. but, um, I still had like a lot of just determination and fire. And, um, so that audition went well and that one worked out for me. Um, but it kind of threw me off. Like I've really loved Cleveland and I loved my retirement community. And so I was also kind of sad when Mm -hmm. it happened. I just, it was, it was an abrupt end to my time in that yeah. city that I really loved. Yeah. So, but I couldn't turn down that professional mm-hmm. opportunity. And here I am 10 years later yeah. in the orchestra and it's totally my home now. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's really yeah. great that they were able to work with you and make it possible that you could sort of juggle these two things of finishing up your degree while you're at CAM and then I guess commuting and going into the orchestra at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. And And I think 
it's nice to know that there are professional organizations out there that will, you know, take the extra time to personally help you and listen to you and make those kinds of things possible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about the audition day maybe? And cause I feel like I have a decent idea as a wind player about how wind auditions go, but I don't know that much about string auditions. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's mm-hmm. not. I don't know. But were there multiple rounds? Uh, were there different things that they were asking in different rounds? What was all of that? Like? Yeah. Um, so you will get a list a month or two in advance mm-hmm. of every excerpt that they might ask you in a couple concertos. And, um, then when you, every audition is a little bit different, but for this one, you arrive and go to a group warm up room. Mm-hmm. And then when it's nearly your turn to play, like you may have drawn a number after being just given told what hour to show up and you draw a number within that hour. Um, when it's your turn to go into your own private warm-up room, then they'll give you a shorter list Mm -hmm. for the preliminary round. Mm -hmm. And then you have a little bit of time to prepare that list. And then you're taken on the stage or in whatever room the audition's happening and you can't talk Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you have to walk on a carpet carpet and it's blind behind a screen. And then someone's voice will ask you to get settled and start playing. Mm. And then you just kind of play through the list um, or they might stop you or they might ask you to do something differently. And then you just leave. And then when everybody in your hour is done, then um, everybody gathers in a waiting room and they'll tell you who goes on to the next round. Or these Mm. days, sometimes they do that by email, which I think is really cool. Mm. Um, I think maybe overall the trend is going more in the direction of more blindness in auditions. So less unscreened final rounds Mm -hmm. and even a little bit more privacy and the experience of who's passing. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. That only adds to the pressure. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on why maybe it's getting more blind? Had you seen in the past that auditions were maybe unscreened for the final round and now you feel like it's not so much anymore? Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like very few orchestras are moving in the direction of less screens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, everybody's just trying to be more equitable. Yeah, just as trying fair to be as, as fair as possible. Yeah. Um, ideally. Yeah. So, That's nice to know. <laughs> it's interesting to know and just to think about, yeah, the trends of what's happening in the audition space. Yeah. It's interesting. It's an incredible mind game in preparing for an audition. You got to make sure you have a lot of support and mm-hmm. um, just go easy on yourself and mm-hmm. remember that it's just, you're not being judged. It's yeah. just, you're playing in that moment. Yeah. Try to separate that from yourself because yeah. it can be easy to not pass or not win 10 auditions and just feel like such a failure. Mm-hmm. But playing an audition is really different from a lot of other kinds of performing and it's just a different, different skill, the skill to be able to deliver who you are as a musician in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's a really unique. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I'm wondering, cause I know I've heard from chatting with other people as well about their audition experiences. Do you feel like maybe it helped you that you weren't sort of desperate for this job because you had you know, a degree to finish and you had this retirement community that you're serving in CIM. So maybe you didn't feel quite as much pressure in that audition in particular, because it wasn't like 
I have to leave this job. <laughs> Maybe, but I think I was also starting to feel the pressure the, as, as the end of my schooling was coming, mm-hmm. was nearing. And I was thinking, this is the time mm-hmm. to propel myself into the next thing. Yeah. And I'm going to have to feed myself and house myself. And mm-hmm. um, so I think it was maybe in some ways that there was a relief of pressure from not needing it in that moment. Mm-hmm. But there also was the pressure of the end of school. Coming. Yeah. And I course. think that helped to fuel my preparation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I can imagine, especially getting towards the end of your studies, I feel like every musician, every student wrestles with that question of what's coming next and how am I going to feed myself and how am I going to pay the bills? And I think especially for musicians, you never really know exactly when that next audition will come mm-hmm. and let alone especially for winning it. Especially yeah. for winning players. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it is totally understandable that even, even when you are in this pretty good space where you were, obviously it's impossible not to be thinking ahead and, and trying to prepare for, you know, graduating and entering the career field anyways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that I, I, I'm partially glad that you're doing this podcast just mm. because there are so many challenges at that phase of life. So end of school, beginning of career, whether there's a, a gap there or not, mm-hmm. or overlaps or whatever, I feel like that's kind of a time in life that you don't really get so prepared for when you're in school. Yeah, um, that is, it's just hard to prepare for in general, and. Once you are done with school, you're just so very much all on your own for the first time. And whether, again, whether you are just trying to win an audition, which is its own kind of like really difficult um, situation, or if you have a job, but all of a sudden you're getting no feedback and you have so little structure to your life and you're just trying to figure out how to prepare and structure your time and learn music really quickly. Yeah. And you don't have your support network necessarily of all your close friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It can feel kind of lonely and it can be hard to navigate. So it's just a time that I don't think people talk about very much. And maybe everybody's feeling alone, but they're all feeling alone together and they just don't know it. Mm. (laughs) So so let's talk about that more. Let's all talk about that more. Yeah. And I, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because that's absolutely a main motivation behind starting the podcast. Mm. I feel like especially having finished three musical degrees now myself I often get asked that question at each stage you know what comes next what are you doing next and I always feel very insecure when I don't have an answer Mm -hmm. to that and it's a really hard question to answer especially in our industry where there's a lot of uncertainty about what does come next because who knows so many things could come next but I think in that insecurity there's also a lot of excitement and you know that I guess my idea with this podcast is being able to share that there's so many different pathways that musicians can go down oh my gosh so many different ways that people could be orchestrating their careers. And so I think navigating that transition time and those transition periods are really hard. And like you say, something that maybe isn't addressed as much because it's hard to address a really ambiguous, uncertain time. Whereas, you know, some other parts of the music field maybe have more of a set pathway that you can follow. Mm -hmm. So I think it's 
great to be able to discuss it more. And I really appreciate people like you being willing to come on and to share their own story because I feel like even though everyone's story is unique and different, there's little pieces of advice and wisdom that we can all pick up and garner from everyone's different stories. And so I really appreciate you sharing. Oh yeah, absolutely. And what you want can keep changing Mm -hmm. and Um, you know, I think it's kind of just up to us to always evaluate how, what we're doing is making us feel. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we're feeling drawn to something, follow that. If you feel like, um, you can have your maximum resonance in one area more than another, then follow that. And I feel like what I'm doing more or less is somewhat mainstream, but I'm actually still always trying to figure out my path and trying to figure out, um, what I'm meant to be doing, both yeah. like what can, how can I give most and how can I feel the happiest and most settled. Mm-hmm. I love that. And yeah, I mean, you say that your path is maybe a little more mainstream because I suppose in some ways it can look like that on paper. Like you studied at music school, you did your undergraduate and master's in performance, and then you went on to pretty immediately and amazingly win an orchestral job Mm -hmm. and play in an orchestra, which is the dream of so many musicians. It was was just so lucky, yeah. Mm, But I mean, also took a lot of hard work and a lot of focus and a lot of intentional decision-making on your part to propel you on that pathway, as you've been saying. But I feel like having heard a little bit more about what you're doing now, I don't think it's completely conventional. So I think it would be (laughs) exciting to get to hear more about the other different parts of what your life looks like now. Before we get quite to there, could you share a little bit about your time starting out in the orchestra? What was that period like of adjusting to playing with a professional orchestra having come from preparing for this throughout your whole training. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. I wish I could say that I feel like it was more of a seamless transition or that I had more confidence, but I think those voices of insecurity that have always been with me yeah. just started being really loud yeah. again in this moment. Cause I felt a lot of pressure. Mm. The job that I actually got was not a 10 year track job. It was mm-hmm. just a one year job. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of a high pressure job. It was like a leadership position. Yeah. With people that have been in the orchestra, some many people sitting behind me that have been in the orchestra for decades. Mm. And so I just felt pretty inadequate mm-hmm. doing that. There's just no way that I could possibly have enough experience to be always ready. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I try, I, I tried to do my best and I just tried to not let people down, but I had a lot of imposter syndrome there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew that at the end of that year, I was going to not have a job again. So yeah. I had that fire all over again. Yeah. So I managed to take a series of, I've taken so many auditions within my own orchestra. Mm-hmm. I can't even count how many, Wow. um, and some of them successful and many of them not successful. Uh, but I've obviously learned from all of them. Mm-hmm. So I've moved around a lot within my own orchestra That's and so I've had a lot of like one year things. And now, now I have tenure in the orchestra and I'm yeah. very grateful for that, but it took, time um, it took some time and I still will maybe take some auditions yeah. in my own orchestra. Yeah. But back to your original question, um, starting out was very difficult for me because of some of the reasons I mentioned before mm-hmm. I didn't have feedback, which I was used to having. And yeah. I didn't have, I was very reliant. I realize now on um, guidance 
from my teachers. Yeah. So what, what's the best fingering and what's the best everything and how do I do this and how do I do that? Yeah. And so I was just trying to figure it out for myself without letting down people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was trying to figure out how to structure my time all of a sudden having more time than I was used to having. Mm-hmm. And then I had um, all these voices in my head and, uh, it just, it was hard for me to transition Mm -hmm. and it took a lot of time for me to feel more confident in what I do. Yeah. And in some ways just now I'm starting to find that a little bit more, I think Mm -hmm. just with years of doing it. Yeah. Um, and so I just, yeah, I just did the best that I could for so long, even though I didn't always feel confident. Yeah. Do you have any insight into battling with that, especially in those first, especially even in that first year of, you know, feeling all this insecurity and hearing these voices. Cause I can imagine I would feel similarly. I can imagine a lot of people would feel similarly, especially when you're joining an orchestra where there's a lot of members who've been established and playing it for a long time and you're the new piece and you have to fit into that sound and into that community. And that's a lot, even just socially, not even in mind with musically, you know, all these different things that you have to keep in mind. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, how to, how to better approach that or handle that? Mm-hmm. Or even maybe just in hindsight as well. <laughs> right in hindsight. I mean, I think it's always going to be hard, but yeah. in hindsight, I wish I hadn't felt so, um, ashamed of that mm-hmm. because it was pretty natural and pretty to, to be expected. Yeah. And so I think that it, you know, I should have felt okay, like maybe talking to people about mm-hmm. it or just seeking more advice or even seeking more training. So that's something that mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit of a stigma against in our field. Yeah. It's like being trained even once you're like in the professional field. Yeah. So I did have occasional lessons with my former teacher and with other teachers, but mm-hmm. I could have done more of that. And mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with always having a curious mind. There's yeah. no point of arrival. I don't feel like I've arrived. Like I sure I have a job, but I don't feel like I'm at a point of arrival. I yeah. feel like I'm just always moving forward. Mm-hmm. So one of my own goals is just to keep learning more mm-hmm. and um, keep a curious mind and asking questions. Yeah. And just, yeah, I feel like people can only see that as if they see that as a weakness, then that's their problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's helpful. And I think even just hearing what you're saying and realizing that and knowing that, you know, even if it feels like this, there doesn't have to be the stigma, I guess, about what you're saying, you know, maybe seeking out more lessons or talking to people in the orchestra about it. And maybe people will be more approachable and open about it than I think they would be. So I think even just having that knowledge and going in armed with that knowledge of even when I'm feeling these feelings and when, you know, the situation and the environment can feel a certain way, I can still try to act, you know, differently going against those thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just remember like everybody's been there. Yeah. The person next to you might've been here for 30 years, but at one point it was their first day too. <laughs> yeah. They probably yeah. felt a little bit nervous. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I also think that's so interesting how you were explaining that, you know, this first job was a one-year job, which is 
nerve-wracking. I haven't had a job in an orchestra, but I know when I went over to London, I had a one-year scholarship, and I lived in London for seven years, and I'm so grateful for the time, but every year I had to fight for funding, because mm -hmm. I never knew, I always had funding for one year. Mm -hmm. I never knew what would happen the next year, so I can understand some of that insecurity mm -hmm. and that uncertainty of, I have no idea where I'll be next year, <laughs> and, you know, fighting and being scrappy and all these mm -hmm. kinds of things of, you know, trying to get just the next step forward. So can you share some of that time and what it looked like for you and taking all of these different auditions, even within one orchestra, what that looks like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just to be totally transparent, that was also really challenging for me. So I was still trying to get used to managing my time and everything, having a job and then trying to prepare for auditions while also having the job. Yeah. It was very taxing and it was really difficult for me mm. to just find the time and find like the strength in my body to do that much playing in a day. Yeah. Cause it's just so strenuous to prepare yeah. for an audition. So I have such a better mindset about it now, mm. I think. And my auditions, which I continue to take, mm. um, I think that I have a more balanced approach now. So instead of thinking of, uh, my job and my audition preparation as separate things, mm -hmm. I try to work on being more of a whole musician. Mm -hmm. And because I have two little kids now who demand a lot of my time, yeah. I have to use every moment that I'm holding my instrument as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if I'm playing just a pops program that is on paper easy, mm -hmm. that time on my instrument is so valuable. Mm -hmm. And I know that now because I have these kids that yeah. limit my time a lot. Yeah. So whatever I'm doing, I just try to really think about my technique and listen to my intonation and try mm -hmm. to make my vibrato continuous and all these things that I used to think I had to do separately in the practice room. Yeah. Just like learning how to be more of a home musician and integrate all of your skills into everything that you do. Mm -hmm. So it's a Amazing that it's taken me so long to start figuring that out, but it's something that I try to do more. At the time, I wish I would have just realized that whenever I'm playing my instrument, I could be working on improving and yeah, um, utilizing that time, utilizing the time, right? And so, and that uh, time that you're spending on your technique can directly improve your audition excerpts. Mm -hmm. It's not like that's a waste of time, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. I think that's really helpful because I think. I think, like you say, a lot of times I feel personally as a musician that things are in boxes and like you're saying, you know, maybe you might not consider time on the stage or time in rehearsal as the same as practice time, but by being really intentional with, like you're saying, all of the time that you just have on the instrument. And I think even just being very mindful of taking the most advantage of that time, because I think maybe if you're in rehearsal, it might take more effort to be having that mindset of, you know, really thinking about your technique because maybe it's easier to do that in a practice room setting because that's where you're used to, but actually you can translate it into different settings and, you know, then be more efficient and take advantage of those times if you're not able to spend as much time in a practice room. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I think that's helpful to know that it's just that mind shift of being able to look at different situations, maybe with a different frame of mind. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How was taking auditions for different positions within the RPO? How did that work? How did that, what did that look like? So did you 
in the midst of your first year in the RPO, were you then hearing about a possibility of another audition that you then took? What did that look like? Yeah, yeah. So auditions would just come up and I'd hear about it and start preparing those series of um, like core positions and B contract positions and one year positions mm-hmm. and all of these different things. Mm-hmm. So I took every different kind of audition. Yeah. And um, were you asking about my particular path through those? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't even remember because I feel like almost every year it's been like a different. Yeah. Position. At some point I took um, another one year position and got a one year position in the first violins. Mm-hmm. And then I, the, the position that I have now is actually called B contract, but not every orchestra has that. Mm-hmm. So it's a tenure track position, okay. but it's not the core. So I don't, um, I do play actually in almost everything, but um it's um, it's really hard to explain. No, it's okay. Or sometimes I don't play things. Yeah, um, but and it's yeah. probably like you say, it's probably every orchestra has their every own orchestra system. has a different system. Yeah, some yeah. orchestras rotate between the sections. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so yeah, so you're just navigating your way through yeah. the RPO's own yeah <laughs> ecosystem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How about some different parts of what your career looks like now? So. Are you involved in other things? I have seen on Facebook, which is really fun and cool, they've gotten into flower mm-hmm. arranging, um, which looks beautiful. <laughs> I love like seeing your photos and things pop up on my feed because they're always just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you said, you also have two beautiful kids and you're married. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different pieces, even just from that. Maybe if you could share if there are any others and how these things all work together in your life yeah I guess I'm the kind of person that likes to be doing a lot of different things yeah I have a lot of different interests so yeah I'm always trying to balance my time a little bit better but um a really big part is also my quartet that I play with oh yeah so um yeah I'm in a quartet with three other RPO musicians although one of them just moved to Buffalo Mm -hmm. somebody but we're we're still playing together Mm -hmm. so um our group is called the Soloff Quartet and we named ourselves after our teacher Peter Soloff from CIM because all of us happened to go to CIM before they're all in the RPO. In the RPO. Yeah. That's so cool. That group's been together for like nine or 10 years wow. and it is such a um, joyful part of my life. Mm-hmm. They're very good friends of mine and we, I think, have equal levels of commitment to the group, how much mm-hmm. we can commit. And we play a few concerts every year and we do things here and there and it's just the right amount for us and we're very community oriented and Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, having that group has been so integral to my happiness and growth as a musician. Yeah. And I feel very lucky that I found them because it's not a given. Yeah. And it's nice because it sounds like that's sort of pulling on even what you were doing from the very beginning of, you know, playing with your parents around the community and then continuing that into your studies and this retirement community when you were, you know, doing chamber stuff with them. And then you're able to just continue that now with this group. And I feel like it's this thread that's like been there from the beginning for you. So luckily, yeah, there was just a time at Eastman when I didn't have a steady chamber group mm-hmm. that I played with and I really missed it. I yeah. mean, it really, I think is so important and because you just, it's a specific kind of challenge and you can play this amazing music that's out there yeah. and um, you can go to so many different places and spaces because you're smaller and mm-hmm. you can relate to people more personally. Yeah. And that is, I think, incredibly rewarding and like much needed as yeah. an orchestral player when sometimes you can just feel like one of a mass, no matter how yeah. hard you're working and how well you're playing on that day, you may not feel the 
rewards of the more personal connections. Yeah. So being able to like, um, yeah, be in smaller settings. We've played in so many different and interesting types of settings mm. and connected with so many different and interesting people. Yeah. Could you share what some of those things, some of those interesting settings <laughs> and people that you've connected with are? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a re- retirement community that's been mm. very um, welcoming to us here. And um, we come back every year and have started to bond with those people. Mm-hmm. And that's a very special place. Um, we've been to all so, so many different schools in the mm-hmm. area. Lots of public school programs have brought us in. There's some amazing centers for um, people of all ages with special abilities. And mm-hmm. we've worked with those in those communities. And um, gosh, where else? Oh, and then just like you know, random public places in town and during COVID yeah. we would play a lot of outdoor concerts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all kinds of things. Very versatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does it work financially with that? Do you have to apply for funding grants or are you sort of looking individually at each place you perform on, you know, getting funding from them? How, how does that work? Yeah. Well, we could, if, if we did that, if we had created more of a business out of our quartet, I think we would do that. We would mm-hmm. be searching for grants and that kind of thing. Um, we perform, we're a little bit more passive in that mm-hmm. aspect. So we, um, were invited to be like an am- ambassador quartet for the society of chamber music in Rochester. So oh, okay. they create a lot of performances for us. Amazing. And then other than that, we just, we're just invited to do things. Yeah. And the fact that we're connected with RPO helps a lot too, yeah. actually, because they find some performance opportunities for us. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally individual people will reach out to us. Mm-hmm. But I also play in more of a gig quartet mm-hmm. um, with another friend, wonderful friend from Eastman. Mm-hmm. And um, she's very active. So her, she's made it a big part of her career to be a quartet manager. Mm-hmm. And she's created her own business and she's incredibly organized and she has um, a beautiful contract written up and she does a great job communicating with the people that we're performing for. Yeah. And so she's been very proactive mm-hmm. about creating this as a business Yeah, and she puts out an amazing product mm-hmm. and she and her husband also do a lot of their own arranging of the music oh, wow. that we play. Um, so she's taken again, a very unique route after her musical yeah. career to create something and just make it work and do a really good job based on things that she, mm-hmm. that her own skills. Mm-hmm. So that's another, she's another person that I admire for yeah. the work that she's done since yeah. school. And it's cool that you get to see sort of both sides in these two different ensembles that you're playing. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk some about flower arranging and how you got into that, how that happened? Right. That's been a really fun thing over the past few years. Mm -hmm. Um, I just kind of fell into that. It, like it became like a hobby and then sort of an obsession I just had to do something yeah. with it. I don't know yeah. if you feel that way about oh, yeah. like totally. Lord of the Rings and food blogging yes. and yeah, yeah. I can't not do this. Absolutely. It's too fun. Yeah. Um yeah, so we moved into our own house and we're lucky enough here in Rochester to be able to have a yard, you know, mm-hmm. we can like um we can have a, a growing space a here, garden. a garden. Mm-hmm. So when we moved into our house, I just got so excited when I realized I could grow flowers and give them to people. So yeah. I just grew in the ground at my house and bring it to someone. It'd be really special. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started just learning more and doing more and experimenting more. And then eventually kind of turned our yard into like, frankly, a little farm. <laughs> Amazing. It's a out of control. And then during COVID, I, I thought, okay, I'm not doing anything else. Let's do yeah. something with the flowers. Mm-hmm. So I created a little um, 
like flowers and fundraising projects mm-hmm. in my lots gobs of spare time. <laughs> and, um, that was really cool. It's kind of a way to connect people who weren't seeing each other in person. Oh. Like, they could donate to a cause. Um, hopefully most of them were local causes mm-hmm. that were just kind of promote equity in, in Rochester. Yeah. And, um, so kind of like encourage people to be giving in to our community and making it better. Yeah. And then if they do that, then they can send flowers to a friend, which at the time really nobody was seeing each, each other. Yeah. So it kind of made sense in my mind. There was like a lot of also racial reckoning during that time when we were all at home. Um, so just like, let's, let's put our resources into these areas that really need help in our mm-hmm. city, housing equality and food equality and racial yeah. equality and all of these things. And, um, then connect with each other through flowers. So that was fun. And then it's kind of evolved from there. Mm -hmm. So now I have like a teeny tiny little side business of, um, like doing bouquet bars. Amazing. So yeah, I've just done a couple at our local tea shop and then I have some more plans with that. So it's really just something that I love doing and I loved it enough to want to try to make a little side hustle out of it. Yeah. So that's so cool. And I think that's just beautiful that you started this, especially during such a you know, challenging time for our world and for society and that you found this beautiful little piece that you could add to just help make it a little bit better. And and that's really sweet. I mean, I've been here during Meliora weekend and the, you know, anthem, the motto for the University of Rochester and Eastman is Meliora ever better. And I just think that's something that like a lot of Eastman students are going out and doing in their communities. And so to hear, you know, your little piece, it doesn't have to be something massive, like even small gestures can mean so much, especially Mm -hmm. during times like, you know, what was happening in the middle of COVID and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really special that you were able to take this interest and then put it into your community. Sure. But it's not all selfless. (laughs) (laughs) I also enjoy doing it. And also like, um, you know, this time in life, as we were talking about, it's, it can be unpredictable and difficult Mm -hmm. after you graduate from school, but you're also kind of finding your identity outside of music in some ways, or at least I hope that like one would feel the freedom to do that Yeah, because we can, I think, especially if you're in the music field, you've probably been playing your instrument for most of your life. And it's very closely linked with your own identity. Yeah. So finding who you are as a person outside of your instrument has, is, is currently an important process to me. It's something that's important to me because mm-hmm. if you just only link yourself to your profession or your instrument, then it can be too easy to just be too hard on yourself when something doesn't go as planned or you don't win the audition or the performance doesn't go as well as you wanted it to. You can just take that very personally and Mm -hmm. get so down on yourself. So, um, it helps me a little bit to think and find more who I am outside of violin just as a whole person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's very important. And I, I have found this as a musician and as well as being in content creation, because I think especially in social media, you're so encouraged to niche down and find, you know, a very specific little community, which is very impactful and really 
effective a lot of times, but I've always struggled with that fact that I have so many interests and so many things that I want to share and do. And so I've never been good at niching down (laughs) and and it's maybe not the best for growth, but I've kind of gotten to a a point where I'm like, I'm just going to create things that like you're saying that I want to create and explore more of who I am as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And if that lands, then great. And if it doesn't, that's fine because I enjoy making it and I find joy in the process. And I feel like social media and that landscape is sort of exploring that idea that people are more than just, you know, one niche mm-hmm. in social media or in music, you know, people are more than just their instrument and we can be developing ourselves as more whole people. And I think that's really important. Like you say, it's, it's beneficial to the community. It's beneficial to you as well. It's sort of like the retirement community is like everyone wins. It's like, you know, why not? I mean, you're, you're totally right. What else can we do except just what feels right in the moment? Because we can't see the future. So 10 years from now, you'll be looking back at this time and probably saying, thank goodness I tried that thing because look what it's turned into. What, how much joy it brought me, how I even just made this connection with this one person that's mm-hmm. now a valuable part of my life. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you just never know what can happen with what you put out into the world. Yeah. So yeah. So that's really cool that you just took this interest and you made it into this little side hustle business. Very exciting. Would you say there's anything from your time training at music school, maybe at Eastman and or CIM that has helped you for this side of business because it's it's seemingly very separate (laughs) from a music degree and background but are there things that you have felt actually I can see how my background in music is contributing to this part of what I'm doing in this side of the first thing that comes to mind is just like the attention to detail yeah (laughs) that's such a huge thing as a musician. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, cre- trying to create something beautiful. I guess that's what you're doing mm-hmm. in both cases. Um, so I guess it makes sense as someone who has high attention to detail, but also um, enjoy doing other things that require them. You might need to be very precise or mm-hmm. thoughtfully put together. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's see. I think I've maybe learned a lot of Public, I shouldn't say this right now. I'm not a professional public speaker. You have to do a lot of public. You have to put yourself out there when you're playing concerts, whether you're comfortable doing it or not. Yeah, yeah. And then when you're out in the town, putting yourself out there in a new and uncomfortable way, also talking to people, Mm -hmm. trying, you know, just trying to communicate. So yeah, yeah. Were there other parts of putting together this little side business that? you know, you could maybe draw out. So I don't know, branding or social media or what do you think? <laughs> There's like so many areas that I can work yeah. on. I don't even have a website yet. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you find people? How do you find oh, people um, to connect with for your flower business? I'm, I'm just rolling with it. It's definitely a baby mm. right now. So just kind of using social media to get the word out there and yeah. um, some things have started coming back. So I guess, mm. Maybe once you reach a certain point of reaching enough people, creating a tiny little Word buzz, then things start coming back to you too. Yeah. So it's probably the same, you know, if you form um, a, a band or a chamber ensemble mm-hmm. or something, it's probably the same kind of thing. Once you get out and do a few performances and people really love it, they'll start talking to each other. Yeah. And things will start 
circling back around. Yeah. It certainly just takes time to build that yeah. buzz. Yeah. But obviously, like, if you're really on top of it, just creating a website and putting your stuff out there, you can do it so quickly. Yeah. Um, with between advertising and branding and yeah. website and being really active on social media. Yeah. And I think I like, can do more of that. No, but <laughs> like, I think what you're already doing, like, I've already been seeing, you know, your flowers come up on my feed and you don't have a website, but it's still like the word is getting put out there. And I think also just utilizing, you know, cause I've seen mutual friends who have been mentioned your flowers mm-hmm. in my feed. And I'm like, Oh, like, that's so cool. Yes. This person has, you know, benefited from that. And cause obviously you have a lot of pieces to your career and a lot of things that, that you're doing. You have a whole family and two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can only do so much. Um, but even just the little things that you do, like you were sort of saying with practicing, like being effective with those little pieces can still go a long way. I like what you're saying. Yeah. I had not thought about that tying in. I thought about it's like feeding me mentally and emotionally, but yeah, I guess professionally also. Um, but yeah, social media can go a really long way. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't have that much time to do much yeah. more with it than I'm yeah, already doing. So I think if I were determined to do more with my flower business, I can make that happen mm-hmm. through those routes um, of advertising and website and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, right now it just is sort of making me happy and yeah. doing it occasionally is yeah. enough. So I'm just letting it breathe. And yeah. And that's, you know, it doesn't have to be any more than that ever because yeah. I mean, you have <laughs> all these other parts of your, your career that you're also juggling and it's fun to have a side hobby that maybe can be a little bit of a side hustle anyways. And I mean, a lot of people have hobbies that aren't side hustles at all. They're just hobbies. You know? and like, that's great too. So it doesn't have to be a fully fledged business or become something it could be, but it doesn't have to be like yours. Like you've sort of been saying throughout the whole interview, a lot of that just curiosity and exploring and trying other things and exploring, you know, who you are and other interests and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just important to do as a human being. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. (laughs) How does your family fit into all of it and how have you sort of been balancing, you know, getting married and then having two kids? How does that work with being in an orchestra and then having a little side hustle? How does all of that balance together? Right, right. Yeah, it's been so challenging to balance. The only reason I'm doing these things is just because I'm craving what it does to feed me. Mm-hmm. But um I think that obviously early years with kids, um are so challenging because you just have to let go of a lot of your own, um, like what you thought were your needs. Yeah. And then do a lot of reprioritizing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, my kids really need me a lot. Yeah. And so I'm having to learn to just be a lot more efficient in everything that I do and fit my practicing into smaller amounts of time mm-hmm. and, um, try to stretch them every day to be more tolerant of my needs when yeah. I'm obviously really in touch with their needs all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of practicing when people are like grabbing at my clothes and like <laughs> screaming a little bit. And I try to just make them wait one or a couple more seconds so yeah. they can get a little teachers to that. <laughs> but man, yeah. it is really tough. Yeah. How was that time period, especially when you first had kids? 
and balancing that with an orchestra job because I think especially as women in the music field and being a mother and balancing that with the career is always a challenge and so I feel like the more that it can be the more people can share how they sort of navigated it I feel like it's really helpful so if you'd be willing to share sort of what that time period looked like for you sure yeah so one thing that was interesting to me is that after having kids I I kind of needed my job mm-hmm. a little bit more in some ways to be adult time and time away from my kids. Yeah. Because even though I loved them, it was a lot of concentrated together time of at the course. beginning. So my career started to feel like it balanced that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um, instead of my rehearsal or concert being the most stressful part of my day, it became like actually the a most stressful part of yeah. my day. Yeah. Like That's a funny. That but, perspective shift once I'm sure oh my gosh. kids everything changes. Yes, so many perspective shifts and they've helped me so much mm-hmm. to get out of my head mm-hmm. and to quiet those voices. Because yeah. when you're a mom you just like there's so you're doing so much. Yeah. I know that I'm doing a lot. I'm proud of how much I'm doing and I'm proud of keeping my kids alive. Yes. And as you should be. Yeah. And so it's given me a lot of confidence, mm-hmm. honestly, and it's also put a lot of things in perspective, you know, yeah. when you're caring for a life and you're seeing all the challenges of like a new person in the world, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, like you still want to play your best, but missing a note, I don't get so down on myself. Yeah. You know, I don't like take it so personally. I yeah. say, oh, that happened. What can I do better? Mm-hmm. And it's less personal and it's less serious. Yeah. I think I'm able to take those things more lightly now. Yeah. So I have my kids to thank for that along mm-hmm. with a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like navigating those, those early months and still navigating that, that time as a new parent is pretty challenging in some ways. And, um, I definitely felt this need to show up at work and, come back as soon as possible. I don't know mm-hmm. why I really felt that probably a lot of different reasons, mm-hmm. but I felt like it was important for me to come back and show up and show that I was still as dedicated even now that I'm a mom and yeah. whatnot. And, um, I certainly have just really stretched myself too thin mm-hmm. at times. And, um, then I figured out when I'm doing that sometimes too late, Yeah, you know, like one time I came to play, a concert after being up all night long with one of my kids and just mm. five other stressful things happening. And my husband was out of town and I had no support and yeah, I didn't play very well at that concert. And then afterwards I figured out I should have just called in. Like it's okay to do that. Yeah. And now sometimes I'll take some, I'll take a week off work now and then just to give myself space yeah. because I realized that it's a lot. And yeah. Just being a parent and having this job is a lot, mm-hmm. and it's okay to be realistic about what you can do sometimes. Yeah. So, um, thankfully, I feel the freedom to do that without too much judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I feel personally supported enough in my workplace that I'm able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did struggle with that for many years, yeah, feeling like I needed to just show up and be exactly the same as before the kids, yeah. just to show how you strong I am and how I'm no less strong than like the men in the orchestra, yeah. like people that don't have kids. Yeah. So there, there's been a lot to navigate there for mm-hmm. sure. But, um, and also just 
a few things aren't very well set up, you know, like for, it was really a struggle for me to just navigate like breastfeeding in the early yeah. months. Um, and also childcare mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like, um, all of a sudden we're just, we feel a little on our own trying to just figure out the very basics yeah. of getting by and yeah. making sure our kids are accounted for yeah. and everything. So how did you manage that? Especially um, at the, in the very early days. Yeah. I just, we, we just did it one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> we just figured it out one day at a time. Yeah. And we got support where we needed it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also just seeing other people in the orchestra who had done it was, mm-hmm. gave me strength and assure, reassurance. Yeah. That it was possible. So, yeah. There's plenty of other mothers in the orchestra and so mm-hmm. I talked to them a lot and yeah. saw how they did it. And it was inspired by them, you know, saw that some of them won auditions, even after they had had kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, it's possible. You yeah. can like still create that time. And all of them said the same thing as I did, that in some ways you're much more efficient. You're much more yeah. focused and you feel less pressure. Yeah. Kids, so. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And I think I was just about to say what you were just saying, that is why I appreciate you so much being willing to share that. Cause I think just for people to know that it's possible uh, and just to see that someone else has done it. And so I can try to navigate that too. And it's not, obviously everyone has their own family situation. Everyone has their own personal situation and it'll look different for everybody. But if it's something that you want to have, you know, playing in an orchestra and having kids and having a family, like it is possible and there's ways that it can work and it'll look different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But like you're saying that you were inspired by other people that you were talking to in the orchestra Hopefully people can hear what you're saying and be inspired by that (laughs) and just encouraged to know that, you know, okay, I can see an example of how that happened. So that gives me confidence and assurance that it could be part of my future career as well. Mm Yeah. So thanks Mm -hmm. for sharing that. Yeah. I love to end every interview with a rapid fire question and answer (laughs) section. I just think it's a fun way to sort of get some quick resources out there of like things that you're benefiting from things that you're currently enjoying. So we can just dive into it. Okay. I'll do my best. Cool. (laughs) So who would you say your favorite composer is? (laughs) It's a hard question. (laughs) Um, so, like, if I had to choose right now, uh, I'd probably be um, Brahms because mm. I am preparing Brahms' second symphony for rehearsal tomorrow, and it's just beautiful. so beautiful. Yeah. And if you asked me last week, it would be Wait, so we're different. The time. <laughs> How about your favorite piece of classical music? Okay, again, just to make it even impossible. more difficult. But um, let's see. If I had to choose, I might have to. Um, say a group of pieces, the mm-hmm. Opus 59 Razmovsky Quartets by Beethoven. Oh, I don't um, know if I've heard them. Yeah, those are, that's something that I've come back to throughout my life and mm-hmm. just never stopped. Okay, <laughs> I will give those a listen. What's your favorite movie soundtrack? Movie soundtrack. Oh, interesting. Oh, gosh. Um, there's so many that come to mind. Yeah. These are hard questions because it's kind of like... It's kind of like, obviously you have kids, but it's kind of like asking your favorite child for a musician. You work on these kinds of things so much, or like, I don't know, for me, film scores are what I listen to all the time. So it's like, ah, oh, there's so many good ones. Right, right exactly. Um, and you listen to them for different reasons. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's different times and places and like 
times of your life for different things, but right, just right. for you right now. Yeah. Well, I might answer differently on a different day, but the yeah. first movie that came to my mind was Amelie. So it must Amelie. have something to do with how I'm feeling today and mm. whatnot. I don't think I know that movie. Oh, really? Amelie. Amelie. Is it a foreign mm-hmm. movie? Okay. You should well, definitely watch it tonight. Where's it from? Yeah, it's French. French. Okay. What could you give maybe a quick synopsis? <laughs> um, there, the main character is a little bit of an outcast, kind of adult mm-hmm. female, a little bit of an outcast in society, and she likes doing behind the scene things to affect other people. She decides okay. that that's going to be her life work. Oh. So she finds a little hidden treasure box from someone who used to live in her apartment, and she makes it her life goal to find that person and return it to him, but without him seeing her or knowing it was her. And it has a very charming soundtrack. Wow. That was a great movie synopsis. That could, like, be on the website. Perfect. I will I've go seen it enough times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I'm a very big movie person, so I will add that to my... It's no Lord of the Rings. Things. It might be, like, polar opposite. Okay. I feel like a good movie is a good movie. So yeah. they can there can be appreciation in all genres. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. What, speaking of genres, what genre of music do you feel you listen to most of the time? Um... Let's see. So I think to unwind or Mm -hmm. relax, um, I sometimes go back to my roots and listen to more like folky music. Yeah, that's cool. I love um, uh, like Nickel Creek and um, Goat Rose. I love them. (laughs) Yeah. Very nice. Um, There's also a an album that I really love that kind of crosses the genres Mm -hmm. by the Danish Quartet. Okay. It's called Last Leaf. Okay. And they um, have, like, written and arranged a bunch of, like, either traditional Danish folk music or pieces that they've written for the quartet. Mm -hmm. And I love stuff like that that crosses between, like, the type of music that I heard a lot when I was younger. Yeah. And then, um, because we also played a lot of international folk music when I was young. And then what I do now. Yeah. So, I really love that. I feel like those genres that, or those pieces of music that sort of straddle genres I think are really cool when there can be like multiple influences and like you're saying like you know exploring different parts of who you are as a person and then finding those things that kind of speak to different parts yeah yes so that's fun Mm -hmm. um what are you currently reading um Let's see. I've got a couple things on my nightstand, but I haven't started yet. The the Tao of the Side Hustle is something that my husband gave me for Ooh, my birthday a couple days ago. That sounds useful. Yeah. And then a book that I is also on my nightstand that I always come back to is um, This is Vegan Propaganda by Ed Winters. I don't know oh, if you've read that book. I haven't but read that book. Yeah, we sort of entered our journey into veganism a couple of years ago, and I've done yeah. much more reading in that field than I have like in the music field. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. so did you make... The yes. little, yeah, we, <laughs> well, Molly, when she walked into the room to do the interview, she handed me a little vegan muffin. What kind of muffin is it? It was like a, it's like a morning glory muffin. Morning Carrot, glory. raisins, spices. I'm so know. excited. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> my kids like muffins. Okay. But one of my main ways of getting them to eat vegetables is yes. muffin form and smoothie form. Th- those are the best ways to hide vegetables. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> when I have a smoothie, I'm like, it's just a salad. <laughs> Very cool. I'm excited to enjoy that after we finish. Um, What's the last thing you listened to? Uh, Like three different recordings of Brahms, too. Yeah. I'm ready for this week. Mm -hmm. How about a musician you really admire? Um... I, whenever people ask me this question, I think of, like, people I know, Mm -hmm. my peers. Um... 
so like if I had to choose like a world famous musician, probably I would say Yo-Yo Ma. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, he's just such, such an exemplary person in addition to incredible musician. He makes yeah. so many people feel included and yeah. welcomed in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but like day to day, I'm just very inspired by my peers who are doing interesting things. I'm currently very inspired by my friend Willa, who, um, just got a job in Philadelphia, Philadelphia orchestra and left wow. us so I'm very sad that she's leaving, but so happy for yeah. her. And I'm also inspired because she, um, has maintained her folk music roots <laughs> and, um, still plays beautiful fiddle music in addition to being such an accomplished Mm-hmm. I want to still yeah. really um, admire her. That. Wow, you can play multiple genres at <laughs> high levels. Yes, I that's know. Cool. I always, I guess Yo Yo Ma does that too. Yeah, I must really admire that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. congratulations, Yola. <laughs> that's amazing to get into yeah. Philly Orchestra. Yeah. Fun times ahead. Um, okay, and then the last question is if there's just one resource, so a book, a movie, a podcast, an article, Anything that you feel someone should go check out right now and would really benefit from, what would you say mm. that could be? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. Um, I feel like for me, most like right now, most of the resources that I use are just like people. I'm mm. just like talking to people and mm. from former teachers and talking to people who are like going through some the same thing that I am and whatnot. But yeah. um, if you are like a budding musician and finding your inspiration. I know for me, like it was the, the art of etc. series that was mm-hmm. one of the most inspiring things for me. So the art of the violin, like mm-hmm. got me inspired. It's a, it's a DVD documentary oh. series. So there's also like the art of conducting and the art of what, what not. Many um, things. Yeah. So, you know, if you're just like sort of beginning to feel serious in a field, that can be a fun way to just get um, a sense of the history behind your instrument or mm-hmm. your, what you're doing and see some inspiring people who perform at a high level. Amazing. That's great. I will make sure to link to all of those things below. If there was one last piece of advice that you would give to, you know, either a budding musician, like you're saying, or someone who is in those career transition points or just a musician in general, um, what would that last piece of advice that you would want to leave with the listeners? And then if you could just end with where people might be able to find you, connect with you, if they live in the area and want to find beautiful flower arranging or, you know, string quartet music or, yeah, just connect with you and learn more about what you're doing. How could they do that? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think that maybe it's just because I'm thinking about this a lot right mm-hmm. now. Um but I guess if I had one piece of advice just for like mental health, um, it's just kind of to hold your identity lightly, you know, with your instrument. And, um, like I was saying, just personally, I've benefited a lot from separating my self-worth from my instrument or from how I perform in a given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that has really is, is beginning to help me on a path of, I think, better mental wellness um, in my career and just in myself. Yeah. So, and maybe it's just because it's on my mind, but I think it would be to find who, who you are in some ways separate from your instrument and find what you love about yourself in other places mm-hmm. and hold your music, your identity a little bit more lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if people want to connect with me, I hope that you will not hesitate to reach out. You can find me on, um, through my 
Soloff Quartet website, mm -hmm. perhaps. Oh, also through the RPO website. Um, and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram. So feel free to write me a message anytime. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Molly. Like I said at the very beginning, like you were part of setting the stage and being such a welcoming presence in the Eastman community. And I feel like people are so instrumental in doing that. So I'm so grateful for you being willing to come and share your story and open up about your pathway through navigating this crazy field of ours. And I, I really feel like you've shared so much helpful tips and just wisdom. Um, so I, I'm sure people will be able to really benefit from what you've shared. Um, and I'm excited to see what comes up for you, especially as you're, you know, taking more auditions and, you know, you're doing really fun, cool things. So mm -hmm. excited Aww, to see you. It's very kind of you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Of course. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Orchestrating Your Career podcast. And a big thank you to Molly for sharing her story along with so much valuable advice. If you're enjoying this podcast, give it a follow and it would be a huge help if you could give the podcast a review on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The resources mentioned in this episode and where you can connect with Molly are all linked below. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, as well as get more frequent updates on Instagram. To watch videos of all the episodes and get extra behind-the-scenes content, check out the YouTube channel Orchestrating Your Career. Subscribe so you don't miss anything. Share this episode with a musician or anyone else you think might be interested. And look out for new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Next episode's conversation will be with Annie Ray, orchestra director of Annandale High School in Northern Virginia, who just recently won the 2024 Music Educator Grammy Award. She got to attend the award show in Los Angeles, where she got a special shout out from Trevor Noah and had the opportunity to meet Taylor Swift, Meryl Streep, Oprah, and others. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Until next time, here's the performance of Claire de Lune from Molly and the Solov Quartet. Take it away.